Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security. In the age of AI, we're empowering security teams to better detect and better defend cyber threats. Stay tuned to find out how. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm Sophie Gilbert, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Spencer Kornhaber. Hello. Hi, Spencer, and Shirley Lee. Hi. Today, we're talking about Apple TV's Dickinson, now on its third and final season. The show is a reimagining of the reclusive poet Emily Dickinson's life in the 19th century. But it's not a period drama or a pure biopic. I think I described it once as a bonkers Gen Z fever dream. Wait, I can't you remember did. if that quote is me. Did I? Oh, I you did. I think it's an excellent way to describe it, <laughs> I Sophie. Rather than period drama or pure biopic, it plays as a kind of bonkers Gen Z fever dream. As in, it has a modern soundtrack. The dialogue is full of anachronistic 21st century slang. Characters might say they're hella stoked about the railroad coming to Amherst or that they're staying in for, quote, novels and chill. (laughs) (laughs) It's an unusual show. I remember when it was first announced, we were all a bit like... Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. It just sounded like, I mean, do you remember when it was announced as one of the leads in Apple's new slate and we were all a bit um, We were completely disturbed. Yeah. Right? I think, like, we I were think like, I, this is, there's no way. Yeah. I definitely tweeted something that was like, Mad Libs TV strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> Actress is going to star as historical figure in <laughs> confusing premise on there was, um, streaming the service tweet- you hadn't heard of where it was like stefan from snl being like the hottest <laughs> new tv show has emily dickinson played by Haley steinfield and blah blah, blah. like, like it was yeah. very that energy yeah. well it's funny too because it's creator elena smith who was a playwright and then wrote for shows including the affair and the newsroom before she made dickinson she had a Twitter account that was tween hobo. <laughs> it was a parody of <laughs> tweens who would ride around America, oh, I guess, no. playing guitar. <laughs> and so it does have that atmosphere, right, where it's like very online. And yet uh, mm-hmm. when I saw the first episodes and as it's gone on, it, it, it works. And so we had to talk today about why it works, also about Emily Dickinson's relationship with The Atlantic, which features in season three in a fun way. But I I wanted to ask you guys first, Shirley, tell me, are you a fan of the show? How do you feel about it? Well, I am a huge fan of using M dashes to the consternation (laughs) of my editors. So I am indeed a fan of Emily Dickinson and therefore a fan of the show. We're doing the thing that Dickinson's do, which is to stay at home and sit very quietly with our own thoughts. <sighs> what she said. A quiet night in, baby. Novels and chill. When the show first came out, I was not sure what to expect. 
I had along with the rest of the internet crack those jokes about it being basically like a weekend update Stefan bit. <laughs> this show has everything. Um, and Wiz Khalifa in a carriage. As yeah. Jack. John Mullaney as Henry David Thoreau and his mom is bringing him lunch. Jason Manzoukas yes. as a bee. As a bee. Yes, well, Jason Manzoukas as a bee. High there. on open. <laughs> Uh, Billie Eilish and Mitski in the soundtrack like sure Um, (laughs) and so I went in there like really not sure what to expect and then the next thing I knew I binged all of the screeners like in one night I just couldn't stop watching so I became a fan really quickly but I didn't watch it the way it was intended to be watched I think (laughs) and it's only over time that I yeah it's so interesting that you said that because I really mm-hmm. agree. Like, I think this is a show that needs to be binged and the release mm-hmm. model is not helping. And I think one of the reasons mm-hmm. is you really want to stay in its mood once you're yes. kind of in that space where you're open to it and you're receptive to the characters because it's not a show where a ton happens, right? Like, there's not an enormous mm-hmm. amount of plot. There's lots of character-driven studies and there's poetry. Every episode is based around a, an Emily Dickinson poem, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Shelley, you talked last week in our Spencer podcast about how Spencer is less a, a, an accurate biopic or a real historical portrait of Princess Diana than a soul study. And I actually thought that was such a good way of describing Dickinson too. It, it's less a story about Emily Dickinson, even though very much within the show is, is based on historical fact, than it is a kind of attempt to imagine the person who wrote these poems, mm-hmm. particularly sort of reimagined a little bit within our own temporal context. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you guys? <laughs> Absolutely. It does. This is going to show where I feel like I'm like, does that make sense? Am I reading it's, this? It's right? a hard but- show to describe. That's why like none of us were really sold on it when it was first, uh, you know, put out into the world just as a press release. Yeah. <laughs> you I know? mean, that's, that's such an interesting way of thinking about it. That is a show that you have to binge. Like when we say that, usually it's like you say that because the plot is so good, but you're right. It's not like a super propulsive story. You kind of like can go on mm-hmm. Wikipedia and find out basically what happens in her life. <laughs> um, and we kind of all know uh, what happens in America in her time period. But what keeps you going is just sort of like you don't want the trip to end. Because there have been times when I put on an episode and I'm like, what am I watching? I don't want to watch. <laughs> like, this is not working for me right now. Like, the vibes are off. But when the vibes are good, like, yeah, I, I, I'm all in on it. Yeah, it's a, it's a vibes show. <laughs> <laughs> The vibes in this place are off. I think it's still haunted from the seance. Emily literally saw a ghost. Every episode is centered around a poem, but it is just kind of getting the vibes of the poem and of its atmosphere and trying to drive home the point that Emily Dickinson, the way we've learned about her has always been kind of different from who she perhaps really was because she didn't really fit into her society all that well. So recasting her as this like millennial voice enhances that contrast, the way she didn't quite fit into this stuffy 19th century life. But then what's fascinating about the show is that the premise just keeps layering on more of this conceptual, like, um, again, capital V vibe. And the only thing that's really keeping it grounded is like the painstaking detail in recreating 19th century Amherst, like down to the costumes and the sets. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's very Jeffersonian. So Jeffersonian. I wanted to talk about other 
shows in this mode. I think I think when season two of Dickinson came out, the New York Times review said it sometimes edges painfully close to drunk history or something like that. But it <laughs> it wow. does it, at times Ouch. have that vibe. And I think Jane Krakowski, who plays Emily's mother, sometimes <laughs> she is amazing in the show. She's extremely entertaining, and I didn't fully appreciate her until I read a letter that Emily wrote um, to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, where yes, she, our colleague, right? Our, yeah, our colleague, our, our former our, our colleague. colleague at the Atlantic, and she. <laughs> She said, I think she had a one biting quote about her mother, and it was, my mother does not care for thought. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cold. It reminds me, of, just, I don't know if I should put this in context, but it reminds me so much of, he appears not to read. <laughs> my mother does not care for thought. Uh, uh, Jane Krakowski is so good yeah. in capturing the essence of that one burn. Unlike you, I am not in the habit of constantly expressing myself. <laughs> Spencer, I wanted to ask you, is that the vibe that sometimes puts you off where you're not in the mood for it? But it is it, it, is it throwing to you at all? Yeah, I mean, sometimes a show wants to create a reaction and you can kind of see its gears of zaniness turning and it's just a little slapstick or over the top in, in a way that sometimes really connects with me. And sometimes I'm like, you are just doing this to create the gifts or you're just doing this to be turned into a meme or to have a little think piece written about you. Like it's such a modern show and such an internet era show, even though it's uh, obviously not set in the internet Mm -hmm. times, but it's playing with the kind of like very fractured attention seeking mentality of content and discourse in our era. In this information boom, it's all about the eyeballs. We need as many as possible glued to our pages for as long as possible. It's an attention economy. It's interesting to think about that in, in relation to Emily Dickinson, who seemed pretty uninterested in her life in really getting any sort of notoriety or fame. Maybe I shouldn't try to have an audience at all. Maybe fame is dangerous. There are times when they'll be twerking or swearing a lot or having sex scenes in the orchard. I'm just like, this, this is uh, taking me out of it and in its extremity. But in general, what, what is so great about it is the way it's kind of like is a collage between these different moments and, and the way it does kind of like ape the qualities of poetry, really. Like it, it's more about like moving you with feeling and uh, sensation than about story. So Spencer's a prude. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Jane Krakowski's mom character. Like, we can get into, like, the gender dynamics of this show and its kind of commentary, but she is this poor woman who has dedicated herself to the arts of being a housewife and really mm-hmm. believes in that her identity and her purpose on Earth is to be the ultimate housewife. Edward, you seem to forget you've married the best housewife in all of New England. I can host two tea parties with my eyes closed and one hand tied behind my back. She is so giving and so loving to her family, but it like verges on uh, mania when you have someone like your modern daughter who doesn't want to do it and doesn't want to exist in your mold. It really blows her mind. Like the the idea that, that like women could be wanting to do anything other than getting water from the well at 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty classic plot line, I think, the, the mother-daughter feuding. Mother's trying to disown me again. I was married at 18, Emily. It's high time for you to get a husband. I wanted to ask you about 
Dickinson the poet. Um, I, like many 12-year-old girls, fell in love with the poems of Emily Dickinson when I was a 12-year-old girl. And I think one of the reasons is because she just has that intensity of feeling in her mm-hmm. poetry. Like, And when you're 12, you feel everything so intensely. You know, you're like, oh, boys exist and I don't know any. And, you know, everything is sort of... Well, maybe you guys didn't write poems when you were 12, but I did. (laughs) And I feel like they all had this kind of like this idea of like life is out there, but I don't have it, but I feel it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like one of the things that made me so confused about this show was also knowing as little as I did about Emily Dickinson at the time, this sort of wondering how it would marry her poetry with the reality of her life, which was, you know, what I knew, which was that she was pretty reclusive. Um, Mm -hmm. She was born in 1830 in Amherst. And I think around about the time she was 36, 37, she began basically staying in her room to the point where even for her father's funeral in 1874, she stayed in her room. They had it in the hallway downstairs and I think she cracked the door open so she could hear it. Well, she's been doing this more and more these days, hiding like some mad woman in an attic. It's really quite unsettling. I do hope it's just a phase. She just sort of isolated herself at that point. And I was like, how are you going to make a show about a woman yeah. who stayed in her room? That doesn't sound <laughs> super scintillating. But I, I actually have, I love what they've done with Emily, the character. I love Haley Steinfeld's performance. I think Haley is so charming she in everything. She really is. Especially the, as this character. And, and the one thing that the show really centers around is her relationship with Susan Gilbert, no relation, who married (laughs) Emily's brother, Austin. We're engaged. (laughs) Sue Gilbert is to become Sue Dickinson. Congratulations. It's made me more aware of how in real life historians are starting to understand that Emily actually did have this relationship with Susan, that it was passionate and it was erased from the historical record by Austin's Austin's mistress. mistress. I know. Isn't this, is this going to be in the show? So, so you say it's like her life doesn't seem all that scintillating, yeah, you know what? It's actually soap operatic. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Literally erased Susan's name from Emily's letters. It's it's so amazing. Um, Shelley, did you love Emily Dickinson's poems when you were a 12-year-old girl? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, <laughs> much like you, Soph, I also felt very deeply, didn't quite know how to <laughs> express myself. And I think the way that her poems, again, back to the M dashes, never quite finished thoughts, I still do this. I just, I think, ended a sentence midway through. Like, she feels so passionately that she has to keep on going. And often her use of M dashes and Old English and capitalizing nouns. First of all, the whole capitalizing nouns thing in certain words is already a very online thing. Yeah. <laughs> so Dickinson was certainly ahead of her time. But it is also, it just, it's resonant because that is the way you would feel as a like as a young girl reading in class, Emily Dickinson's poems just being like, wow, she thinks the way that I think, not to say that I am anywhere near <laughs> that level of genius. It's just the emotion. It's the passion of it. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. But also, you know, again, speaking to Erasure in class, we definitely never talked about Sue. We never talked about Emily's mm-hmm. private life, aside from the fact that she was very private. It's just American female poet, reclusive. All right, here are the poems. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. It's like when I used to write in my diary, I used to underline things once, twice, and then three times when they were like really important. And I feel like (laughs) Emily's capitalization has a similar effect. Mm -hmm. Spencer, I don't want to hazard a guess about what you were passionate about when you were 12, but... (laughs) I um, I was writing like the lyrics to 
rock songs on my binder. I was going to say, like, in, nice. In really interesting, swirling sort of designs. It they weren't my lyrics. I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> no, I was, I was I, and I was also posting on message boards. And if anyone... Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> I, like I might have encountered you on a message board. Who knows? That was my creative outlet, yeah. <laughs> but I did want to ask you about the show's use of music how you yes. think it works, how you think it doesn't. Does it take you out of the show? Does it enhance the mood? Like, what do you make of the curation? Yeah, I mean, their use of music is absolutely wild. Uh, they <laughs> love to slam in a raunchy rap song in the middle of a pastoral mm-hmm. scene, or they'll have Billie Eilish playing when she's in the back of Death's Coach, or they'll have uh, like indie rock song like, like Mitski playing during a sex scene. Um, these are all contemporary re- references, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're cool, right? Like, they, they give a sense that the people who are creating the show aren't just, like, picking, um, you know, like, the way that some Netflix shows might kind of just, like, use music as a placeholder or an emotionally manipulative tool. Like, the music they're picking, like, has a lot of, like, cultural connotations always it's like it really brings you into the present the present being you know 2019 2020 2021 i was reading an interview with the creator i believe or maybe the music supervisor and they were saying they picked the music to be modern and specifically avoided any music from like the 90s the 80s you know you could imagine like a rock and roll at dickinson show or like you could imagine yeah like like something like a, a synth pop song from the 80s coming in but they consciously avoid that because they really want to create a very specific dialogue between her era and our era. And so, I, you know, I appreciate that, like, as a viewer right now. And it makes me wonder, like, how will this show play uh, if people go back to it in 5, 10, 20 years? Like, is it, is it like, weirdly dating the show that, that didn't need to be dated? Yeah. Um, but I kind of like that they're putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is a show about a time period, and the time period is now, this particular stretch of time that we're living in this very second. That's how the creator has consistently described it, right? Like this, she wants this show to hold up a mirror to our present, our exact present. So it's not going to use music from any other decade. The terminology is going to be hyper specific. Like on a recent episode, there's a character who spells out what tea means. Tea? Oh, I didn't know you wanted some. Girls, go make some tea. No, I mean like the tea, the gossip. One thing you do when you incorporate a lot of very online elements is you run the risk of almost seeming like you're trivializing the story. Um, mm. And maybe I should check myself in saying that by, do I see Gen Z's as trivial? No, like, no I, I don't think <laughs> I do. I, it's I, just. Are we talking about the show as a Gen Z show or millennial show, or do we think they're the same things? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Because like, we've gone back and forth here, and I, I think. I feel like we should just shut this bottle right now. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I mean, because people get one of very the great questions of our ages. Why would you like, release people this get very Spencer? passionate uh, about generational lines, and I'm af- I'm afraid to. <laughs> I've I been mean, yelled at before. I mean, here's the thing: defining generations is kind of bullshit in the first place, right? right. Like we ran a piece yeah. recently about this. I think this but, is trafficking in very blurred line territory. Yeah. <laughs> but but the thing I wanted to say is, is that you do run the risk of, I think, trivializing. A story, and I, and I think Dickinson is does have sort of serious intent underneath its, you know, I don't know, fetish wear corset. <laughs> That's a bad example, <laughs> but I, I think like Elena Smith, like you were saying, Shirley has has talked yeah. about the show as exploring the idea of the living past. Um, yes, 
and she's also sort of mentioned, you know, the show being about the gothic experience of being a woman, which is mm -hmm. why there are these sort of gothic elements. And Emily feels so trapped and stifled. And, and the real life Emily Dickinson, I think, barely had books in her house because her father was, a, you know, very disapproving of her, her books, father, a wig. Well, her father yeah, said those. her father <laughs> bought her books but told her not to read them. Right. It's My very mixed message. Jumbled that the mind so or joggled the mind, she wrote. <laughs> joggled the mind. <laughs> Such a good quote. <laughs> that was a quote from Emily Dickinson's letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Hang on, I did read that down. What does it say? He buys me many books but begs me not to read them because he fears they joggle the mind. <laughs> they do I mean, joggle we, the we mind. We stand an icon. They do so joggle the mind. It's a, it's a correct mind. fear, but, you know, we need to be joggled. <laughs> My father buys me books and begs me not to read them. He fears they joggle the mind bit of a mixed message but i wanted to talk about this approach in terms of modernizing period stories because uh, dickinson is by mm -hmm. no means alone we also have seen recently bridgerton on netflix and the great on hulu and shirley you've written about both of those shows so what do you mm -hmm. make of this trend does it work in your mind what is it trying to do well I think we as a culture have been doing these retrospectives, right? Like people have been writing about this recently where we keep like going back to certain pop stars. Britney Spears is a great example and reevaluating their place in our larger, you know, celebrity worship culture and whether yeah. we were unfair and et cetera, et cetera. And I do think these shows fit into that bubble as well, where we want to reassess historical figures. We want to reassess our understanding of them. And I think though this isn't so recent that it's like a completely new genre by any means you know Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette came out 15 years ago I believe and even before that you know you have movies like A Knight's Tale which also does a lot of anachronistic things so these tricks have been used before I think the reason why we're seeing all this experimentation in the form of shows like Dickinson The Great and Bridgerton we've had a lot more creatives who want to say something more about women and creativity and sexuality and all these really potent themes. There is something in the water. Uh, and yeah. I don't want to attribute everything to 2016, but I do think that mm. you had a lot of showrunners who started thinking about gender, politics, and race, and yeah. privilege, and and. To do that, sometimes couching it in a modern story doesn't quite deliver the message. And one of the strongest messages is to show how history repeats itself. The Know Nothings have built a platform on populist economic rhetoric and anti-immigrant nativist anxiety. It's a heady brew. Noxious. Yes, but it's working. What do you mean people are actually voting for these clowns? Indeed. Bring up 2016, that occurred to me too... We're talking about Donald Trump's election here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very what? Know. But like what that did was knock everyone into feeling like we're living in history again. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, certain moments uh, in our lives were very woken up to this feeling like we're part of this very, very long story. And we make comparisons between our time and the wars mm -hmm. we've read about or, you know, whatever historical events we've kind of always thought of as kind of hazy and far off, you start to think up what it actually feel like to live through that. And so I think we've been thinking a lot about, about that. And I think we're kind of also interested in the idea that people who were living through history were just like us. Like, like that is, um, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, it's a fascinating idea and it's, it's sort of a comforting idea and it's sort of like a scary mm-hmm. idea too that... Um, not much has changed. Not like the way that the world felt wasn't different. Like, like, like they and Dickinson were living through the Civil War and, you know, all these young men were dying and that's what season three is largely about mm-hmm. appears so far and it's a very explicit drawing uh, connection between how it feels to live through that and how it feels to live through the pandemic where... You know, these kids in their, or these people, young, young Americans in their 20s are like, ugh, this is ruining my 20s. Civil war ruins everything. <laughs> We're entering a new era of security. Cyber threats are escalating rapidly. And while tech alone can't eliminate every threat, it can empower security teams to quickly respond to incidents at scale. Microsoft is transforming the industry by innovating to arm teams with the resources necessary to outpace adversaries and operate at machine speed. Microsoft Copilot for Security, powered by generative AI, works alongside Defenders. Stay tuned to learn more about Copilot's capabilities after the episode. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I wanted to talk about the show's portrayal of race because it's it's very specific it's very intentional Mm -hmm. I think I think it does a really good job of telling a story about 19th century America that is accurate to what was happening in in America at that time as in it's not just about the white characters who Emily Dickinson might have occasionally met in her living room before she went up to her bedroom and never came out um but it's also it's also about the black characters around her henry who's an abolitionist and the editor of the constellation yes which is an abolitionist newspaper and betty who is a local dressmaker um and i wanted to ask you guys what you thought about how the show portrays race well first i find this series to be really specific about its portrayal of race and it's different from the great by not approaching colorblind casting dickinson very deliberately casts its white characters in in history as white black characters in its history as black while also incorporating you know characters of color who were part of historical record like the japanese character on the show is supposed to represent an actual japanese man who graduated college and it was maybe part of the social circle uh so there's elements of that what i find fascinating about dickinson when it tackles race is it does all of this because it really wants this thread of authenticity to be the one authentic element to the rest of its like Mm heady conceptual understanding of time and modernity you know everything else i've seen this comparison somewhere else so it's do not credit this to me everything else about dickinson does feel a little bit like when an english teacher is like well to understand this novel why don't you create a rap about it you know like like you get it now in a modern context right if we hamiltonize it but it's casting of black characters, its rendering of their plots is really, really trying to be historically faithful. I mean, it's definitely going out of its way to give storylines to black characters. And but I think you feel the show trying to 
pull out and be like, no, we're not just a show about Emily Dickinson. We're a show about America in this time period in America now. Yeah. Um, and right. so like, and that's the license it gives itself to kind of swoop in and um, not only have white characters be driving the action. You know, and I think it's, it, it is uh, interesting to watch the show place these characters in a time when they were thinking about race all the time. You know, the Civil War was brewing and then it broke out and they actually do like talk about slavery over the dinner table all the time. Like every episode, it's basically in there in one way or another. Jane, you're like so woke. I know. If I was allowed to vote, I would vote Republican. Good for you. The Republicans are the only ones who explicitly stand against slavery. The true progressives. They're on the right side of history. You know, all the characters do end up talking about the Civil War. And it's funny that the way they talk about the Civil War and about race uses the modern parlance that we use. And so a lot of conversations end up in this region of where nobody really knows how to talk about race. I mean, in this new season, there's Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who, you know, is our, as we said, our our, our Atlantic colleague uh, from way back. And he's... um, (laughs) You know, he's kind of the enlightened white woke bro, and he and it's sort of cringe to watch him. Uh, oh, it is so him talk to about watch. you know it's like. Terrible. <laughs> 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 he's gone to his DEI sessions and all that, and and he's trying to be a good you know white guy in the 1800s. I must prove to all the, let's call them skeptics, that these men are as brave, as disciplined, and as learned as any white soldiers. I see. Damn it. There I go, centering whiteness again. Excuse me? In his meeting with Henry, he just like spouts all of these you know, <laughs> words that he's probably heard in all of his DEI classes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and at the end of it, when Henry doesn't like embrace him fully as a quote unquote brother, as he keeps saying, he just goes, I'll do better. Like, <laughs> which is such doing a great the work. You know, we can all line. just do the work. Yeah, it's just such a good punchline. <laughs> but also, I'll he do better. never stops talking, which is... Yes. <laughs> right. I'm really trying to police my language here. Ah, not police. Patrol. No, that's problematic as well. Damn! I'll do better. Yeah, that episode is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that um, was really one of my favorites. <laughs> I think it's an example of how the show's tricky tonal balance actually really works um and it might not it's risky because you're telling a story about the civil war like the show is set against the backdrop of the civil war and so there's no way to do that without really exploring what the civil war was about you know you run the risk with a show like dickinson of making it all about uh, a bunch of rich white people mourning people who've gone (laughs) off to fight and sort of not thinking about the narrative in a slightly more fully rounded way. So you have this portrayal that is rich and complex and trying to be serious, but then you have this parody of Thomas Wentworth Higginson that could kind of counterbalance it all, but doesn't because, and I think that's what the show does so well. Honestly, it, it, it does manage that tone, at least to me. Um, Yeah. Where you have these sort of absurd moments of, like modern parlance but you also understand that there is a there is a serious story beneath it yeah i wonder what really keeps it from teetering over the edge because it can go so absurdist you know again jc manzuga's b hallucination um (laughs) (laughs) like i remember seeing that and being like boy (laughs) this show is just wild and out (laughs) like well it's a show about uh mm -hmm. The life of the mind. Like, it's a show about yeah. interiority, and we all know how screwed up it can get in there. So, you know, when it takes, <laughs> when it has the, <laughs> yeah. 
when it has the B, I think it's I think it's you know doing what poets do, which is you like mm-hmm. put out this really like bizarre way of seeing the world and trusting that the viewer will relate because we all have seen the Jason Manzukas B. Spencer, are you saying that the show takes (laughs) (laughs) takes poetic license? (laughs) Uh, I've never heard of that, actually. (laughs) That's so poetic. Yes, because it's a poem. It's absurdist, but there's also, there's a grain of truth within the craziness, right? Which I'm thinking mm. about Zosha Mamet's portrayal of Louisa May Alcott, you know, and she's like, so I just want to write a book and make bank. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But, um, <laughs> but it's true. Like Louisa May Alcott did write Little Women and compromise her artistic standards for money. She wanted money. <laughs> she didn't want to marry Joe and Laurie. She did that because her publisher made her and the book yeah. was wildly successful. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to get paid. You know, I'm just about that hustle, so... It, it is funny, and the, and the portrayals are great, and they are ridiculous, but there, there's a grain of truth within it, and I, I think that, again, is what the show does well. I think one of my favorites from season two is uh, Timothy Simons of Veep fame, yes. uh, playing Frederick Law Olmsted, the landscape architect and designer of Central Park. It was just, it was a funny moment, but it was also touching. He really did impart something to Emily that I think was important to her in that scene about sort of pursuing her passions. The audience is irrelevant The work itself is the gift, not the praise for it. Understand that, and you'll understand true mastery. Yeah, and taking on sort of that that position so far in this season, I really liked um, Billy Eichner's take on Walt Whitman, which, you know, wasn't really veering outside of Billy Eichner's usual, like, shoutiness, but it fit (laughs) what the show was trying to do with Walt Whitman. (laughs) I like that all the, um, yeah, there's this kind of... uh, tradition in the show of, of doing wild guest casting for the other literary mm-hmm. celebrities of the time and they're all completely bonkers they're like completely <laughs> over the top characters and the most over the top characters in the show other than mm-hmm. emily and it's like yeah they got these artists in their time were just not normal they're just like <laughs> truly weirdos and that's that is like the kind of class of person we're talking about mm-hmm. you're uncomfortably denigrating the founders of our magazines <laughs> <laughs> I know this. When the Atlantic came up this season, it was like, uh oh, oh god, oh, here we go. No. <laughs> no good can come of this. Yeah. What do you want to read? I don't know. Emerson. Emerson is canceled. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, this oh, did send me down yeah. an Atlantic archives rabbit hole, and uh, we really do have the goods on her. So props to us. Though, though, I guess we failed to publish her poems in her lifetime. Oops. Yeah, she didn't publish any books. I think she published 10 out of 1,800. Mm-hmm. Well, there is that amazing piece that Thomas Wentworth Hickinson wrote about her after her death when he revealed that, I guess she was one of those artists who people became just crazy about after she died. And he, mm-hmm. he wrote, I think, that the passion really surprised even him. And, and because no one knew anything about her, she was really this great mystery. People were starving. There was no, what's that gossip Instagram There was no Dumois back then, so (laughs) they were just begging Thomas Wentworth Higginson for details of her life, and and, and he spilled the tea, as the show would say. He also revealed (laughs) that she once signed a letter to him, Your Gnome, G-N-O-M-E, which I found perplexing. Yeah, reading those letters, you're just like, oh, oh, this show is maybe not going far enough. Yes! She was hilarious and just, like, screwing with him. Like, the creator of the show, like, Elena Smith has said that she worked on this show because she was obsessed with Emily Dickinson. And she spent, like, 10 years developing this show. I read an interview with her where she did just talk about how 
The one question that kept knocking around her mind was, how did this privileged New England woman become this rocket ship of passion who was doing things with language that no one had done before or has ever done since? And there's like almost no way to answer it. So then you, you're just like, well, here's a Billie Eilish track to try to draw <laughs> what was happening in, in this woman's prescient, like ignited brain. Wild nights. Where I, with the wild nights, should be our luxury. Along those lines, I wanted to ask you both how you feel the love affair between Emily and Sue plays mm. in the show. And my, my read from it is that you sort of forget, again, it's this perfect marriage of our time and the historical moment because it just feels like such a natural relationship. There's no mm -hmm. sense that it's taboo or that, that, that they, they have anything to fear and you know and keeping it secret it's just this like very very passionate loving relationship that also has its problems as any relationship does and i, I was curious for both of your reasons spencer what did you think yeah i mean i love that they have made emily dickinson openly queer and like because that does appear to be what the history is and they really dramatize the amount of passion that she felt for Sue. Um, what I don't get is what's like, what's so great about Sue? Like Sue's not that like, <laughs> <laughs> do you guys like Sue in the show? Spencer, like, she's so pretty. I, I, she is pretty. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, mm -hmm. th there's not a lot to, uh, what I like about her is that her um, whole family died and, I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. That's like a very terrible way to put it, but the show kind of plays it as a, as a very dark joke that the, that the Dickinsons yeah. aren't that nice to her, even though her entire family has died. And yeah, yeah that's, that that's like kind of like giving, that's that the most that we get about the character and, though. And Jane Krakowski's like, makes a joke about dying in childbirth. And Emily's like, Sue's mother died in childbirth. Sue will be having this baby all natural, won't you, Sue? I'm in quite a lot of pain. Oh, good. The pain is how you know you're still alive. Oh, don't say that. You know Sue's mother died in childbirth. Did she? I'm like, oh, oh, should we laugh at this? <laughs> yeah. I, I also, maybe across the first season, I was like, what's so great about this Sue girl? All right, she's pretty. I know I can absolutely tell that you feel, you as an Emily, feel deeply for her. But also, is it just because she's kind of unreachable? She's going to marry your brother. Mm -hmm. One of the many problems in this relationship. But I think as I continued watching the series and thinking about it over time, like... I think maybe Sue is supposed to be not just the person from history, but a representation of who Emily could have been if she took the more traditional route mm. of getting married mm. and having babies. Uh, yeah, it's like in, in season two, she's the one who keeps like trying to push Emily to publish her poems, right? Where it's like, women can have it all, <laughs> go do it, <laughs> become yeah. known as a poet. I don't know, like, it's interesting that you say that because my, my yeah. understanding of the real Sue is that unlike the mm -hmm. Sue in the show, she actually was a writer herself. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the show makes the very conscious decision to have Sue be not really artistic at all. Like I think in season yeah. two, she wants to be an influencer and she's like, I'm going to host the best soiree. We need to step up our game. I can't be outdone by a salon in Western Massachusetts. But she really is kind of like basic. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's, and so it's making me think that that's intentional now that you've made these very small points, so. No, I think, yeah, I think that's, I think surely you, you've got it. It is like Emily's constantly tussling with this expectation that she 
get settled down and be a good New England housewife. And here's, yeah, here's the person who did that, but isn't happy. Yeah. Yeah. I pushed you towards him because I wanted to escape what I was feeling. There is so much that I don't want to feel. While we're talking about characters, I wanted to give praise for Lavinia, played by Anna Brushnikov, who is Emily's sister, who is just (laughs) absolutely (laughs) delightful. And the word I'm thinking of is dizzy, but that's not (laughs) But she seems to be spinning a lot. Um, She's just so wonderful to watch. And Anna Brushnikov is so funny and engaging. Come on, it'll be charming. You'll be a Southern belle. I am a shrewd Yankee witch. Respect that. I mean, I would also shout out <laughs> Anna Baryshnikov. Yeah. I also, I love the peanut gallery of their friends. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's led by, like, I think, like, Jane, the popular girl in Amherst, and, and her little minions. <laughs> this is Jane Humphrey we're talking about. There's a scene with them just commenting on the gossip of the town and how weird Emily is. And whenever Jane mentions that she's a widow. Freedom is about being yourself, even if you're just a young, hot widow. All of that just, you know, underlines further what the show is trying to do. But it's just so funny. Every time they're on screen, I love them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Among the minions, Toshiaki is a standout. Uh, Clearly queer quoted. Um. Is he the Regina George? Maybe he's the Gretchen Wieners. Of, he's the Gretchen Wieners. Of of he's the Gretchen Wieners. Definitely, <laughs> he's one of the mean girls. Yeah, any scene with him is hilarious. Okay, I live for the hot goss I get at these sewing circles. I know I kind of derisively mentioned the twerking earlier, but the, the scene where they are on opium and twerking, you know, eating crumpets in their ballroom gowns, that's, that is, um, <laughs> you know, it's a trick that you've seen a lot in these kind of anachronistic shows, but um, mm. it was just pure joy. Yeah. It's funny, like, just going all the way back to what you were saying earlier, Sophie, this is a show where it's like, yeah, when you binge it, you can really stay in the mood and it almost like, it wants you to stay there and it wants you mm. to continue dreaming slash hallucinating with it. Whereas, like, Bridgerton, I didn't binge because I was kind of, well, it's, it's an hour-long show, first of all, and it's a very <laughs> different story. <laughs> And you need like a breather in between the sexiness, and, um, <laughs> and then the and then the grate is so I love the grate, but it is also so much crasser and looter. Uh, it's kind of a nasty show, the grate. Like it's like trashier, but it's still good to me. <laughs> <laughs> to return to this question of period settings and modern stories, I'm curious after our discussion. Do you guys feel the same way about them? Has your thinking on them changed? Like, what what are they trying to do? What, I don't be like, what is the point of them? But <laughs> but, but we, we do have the spate of them, and they are clearly trying to do something beyond just get people to watch them. And how well do you think Dickinson, in particular, compared with the others, succeeds? I mean, what this conversation has like, made me realize is just how kind of soulful the show is this show in particular but also like all of this class of them like what's the point of adapting history to be a uh, modern comedy versus like adapting history to be like a kind of pulpy game of thronesy like historical story about the past that teaches you about the past why why do we need to turn to like a kind of delightful modern comedy i mean it's just like yeah you you get a sense of like what what makes you a human. Like, it's really um, pretentious, but, like, that's, like, uh, I think the point of 
Emily Dickinson's poetry too. Like, like that is what they're doing. And, and another thing you could say is that it's bringing history alive. Yes. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've also come to realize how much harder it is to do this form of remixing mm. than, you know, just taking something historical and plopping it in modern day and, <laughs> you know, turning a character into a girl boss, for instance. Uh, I yeah. think th- <laughs> that's so much easier to do. And it's so much harder to to quote Emily Dickinson, to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. <laughs> um, yes, so- Shirley, you've given us a quote. <laughs> I thought we'd have more. This is perfect. There is a certain slant of light behind you, Shelley, right now that I can see in our video, by the way. It's really... Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> I can finally see it. Winter um, afternoons. But yeah, that's, that's what I've gathered. This is really hard to do, to apply our modern sensibilities to history and then to truly derive a message from it. I, I don't know how long this trend will last in our... I was about to say post-Hamilton world. That doesn't feel right. (laughs) Well, with that in mind, for our closing round, if you had to pick a historical person to give the Dickinson treatment, who would you pick and why? Spencer, I'll start with you. I was doing a YouTube rabbit hole this past weekend about medieval battles, and I learned a lot about Joan of Arc. And I know there have been many adaptations and stories about Joan of Arc's life because she was totally, and this is not a word we should use, but she was uh, batshit. Um, <laughs> and, but, 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 you know, commanded incredible loyalty from the people around her and, you know, changed the course of history by just being so batshit. Um, and so I could see a sort of like, VP style show that was about the people around Joan of Arc, like trying to understand this this woman who was talking to God, and <laughs> various of them like dying in battle. I'd love that. I would watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would go a lot further back. I was thinking about uh, what stories Hollywood hasn't adapted recently. I was thinking that we could go all the way back to like. 55, 57 BC and retackle Ooh. Cleopatra um, <laughs> with, you know, historically accurate casting, but completely modern sensibilities. <laughs> Turn that, that story idea. on its head. All the, all the poison and backstabbing and palace intrigue and being rolled up in a carpet and... <laughs> oh, being rolled up in a carpet, yeah. Yes. That's that, like Taylor Swift being put into like a guitar case or, or a oh my God, luggage, right? right? Like, <laughs> get, yeah, Taylor she's a celebrity, Swift in the right? suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you could say a lot about celebrity with Cleopatra. Well, I don't have a good idea, but Spencer's talking about V made me think maybe... I mean, I don't really want to do a disservice to anyone actually good and significant from history <laughs> by giving them a kind of uh, slightly uh, wacky creative treatment. But but I do think like maybe Ma- the young Margaret Thatcher, you know, you've got the girl mm. boss vibes, like you said, Shirley, she, you know, is a problematic figure from the past who maybe would knit in an intriguing way with the problematic figures from the present. <laughs> but I think I need to think this one through a bit more. <laughs> It'll come, I feel like. Give Hollywood a few more decades. (laughs) It's true. Maybe we just need more time. And also, I'm still Mm -hmm. slightly scarred by Gillian Anderson's portrayal of her from the ground. Oh, my God. Um, That that voice. (laughs) Emmy winning. (laughs) It's the Dune voice. (laughs) 
Well, that does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. Our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm Sophie Gilbert. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you. This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security, completely integrated into your organization's security infrastructure. This AI companion is informed by 78 trillion signals daily to help you catch the threats others miss and reinforce your team's security posture efficiently. It synthesizes data from numerous sources and can analyze 500 lines of code in under a minute to put critical guidance at defenders' fingertips. It helps teams detect threats and take action in minutes instead of hours or days, which can reduce attack investigation time by up to 40%. Copilot also serves as a key second pair of eyes, upskilling junior analysts with advanced capabilities, which frees up senior staff to focus on strategic priorities, all while safeguarding your data privacy. Learn more at microsoft.com slash copilot for security.